Welcome back, everybody. As we continue our studies in 2 Corinthians, this week we find ourselves in chapters 6 and 7. Now, last week I entitled the teaching, Living in the 99% World. And this week, as we look at these two chapters, I have entitled this, Walking in the 1% World. And this is uh, very much on purpose, choosing these two titles, because though we live in the spiritual, we walk in the physical. And we need to recognize that and keep that in our minds at all times. We really don't live here. This physical life is like um, walking with shoes on, and when you die, you take your foot out of your shoe. doesn't mean that your foot ceases to exist. It just means you're not walking in your shoes anymore. In fact, when we leave this physical world and find ourselves 100% in the spiritual world, We're in a place of utter holiness where shoes are not even allowed. Remember that God told Moses when he came to the burning bush, take your shoes off your feet, you're on holy ground. So walking in this world is just 1% of reality. The other 99% is spiritual, and we need to live in the spiritual as we walk in the physical. You know, Paul talks about this in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, he says, Even when we were dead in our our transgressions, uh, Yeshua made us alive together, God made us alive together with Messiah, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, or the spiritual places, the spiritual realm, the 99% realm. So that is where we are seated That is where we live and move and have our being. We are with him. But as you go further in Ephesians, in chapter 4, the first verse, Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the master, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So we're seated with Messiah in the spiritual realm, yet we walk out our lives here in this physical realm. And I truly have pity and and feel sorry for those who think that this world is all there is. Their souls were created to live in 100% of reality. But when they deny 99% of reality and think that this 1% is all there is, and they're truly miserable people. And no wonder the suicide rate is so high when that is the thinking. One of my favorite Jewish authors... Uh, who lived um, about 50, 75 years ago, is Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler. He says, It is important to understand that all reality is relative to the observer. What I perceive as real defines my world, and this depends in turn on my spiritual level. His, uh, his book, one of the, actually it's about four volumes, and one of my favorites, and I picked this up, probably 25 years ago, and uh, it is still remains today one of my favorites. It's called Strive for Truth. They now have it all in one volume. And if you're looking for something you can really sink your teeth into and learn from, uh, this is what I recommend. You'll also find it on our book list on our website. Now, I want to take some time to read what he says about levels of faith and levels of recognition of what reality truly is. And then we'll get right into our chapters. He says that there are four levels of faith. And I probably should have put these with the first one at the bottom, 
and the fourth one at the top as we work our way up and uh, become stronger in faith. But you have to realize that the top one is really the happy few, and the bottom end of faith is the one that is at the top. Nature dominates. So let me just read a few excerpts from this. Level one, nature dominates. And this is what Dessler says. Some consider themselves believers in God, but see natural causes as the dominant forces in the universe. They see natural causes as the dominant forces in the universe. I know many believers, many who call themselves Christians, and this is how they think. They try to control these forces and bend them to their will, relying on their ability to forecast the precise factors that will bring success. They also have unbounded confidence in their own talents and expertise to which, of course, they attribute their success. So yeah, I believe in God, I have faith, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, but I live in the real world and I've got to use my talents and my time and really focus if I'm going to make anything of myself and get success. Dessler says, people on this level are in reality worshiping two gods. They place themselves beside Adonai in the running of the world. In spite of all their talk about faith and trust in Hashem, Denial is deeply rooted in their hearts. Denial is deeply rooted in their hearts. Deep down, they are convinced that, quote, my strength and the might of my hand have made all this wealth, unquote. And that's from Deuteronomy 8, 17. Is this the level you're at? Then you have some work to do. You have some growth to do. You need to develop your faith and try to move to the second level, which is nature is a tool. This is what Dessler says. On a higher level are those whose faith is sounder, more sound. They see the hand of God in every natural event. He describes this like uh, looking through a keyhole in the door and, and you see a pen writing on a piece of paper. Do you think the pen is producing the writing? But when you open the door, you realize someone is holding that pen. Someone's in control of the pen and making the pen put the writing on the paper. And people at this level, they see nature is like the pen that God is using to accomplish his purposes. But Dessler says, however, this person still perceives nature as a reality, even though he considers it as a tool in the hands of Adonai, like the pen in the hand of the writer. Now, that may sound shocking. This person still perceives nature as a reality. What's interesting is even scientists... uh, the physicists realize that what we perceive as the physical realm is really an illusion. It's just the interference patterns of energy waves. It really doesn't have much of reality to it at all. And, um, and so we need to realize that this physical realm, to a great degree, is an illusion. And the scriptures refer to how life in this 1% world is like a moth-eaten cloth. It's like a spider's web. It's mostly just nothing. But then there's level three. God acts alone. Dessler says, on a still higher level are those who realize that nature and its forces have no existence as such. They serve merely to obscure the true state of affairs and provide a test for human beings. Adonai needs no tools. Whatever he wills comes into being immediately. 
This point of view is clear and true. It is built on a well-founded conception of the oneness of Adonai, to whom alone belongs the power and the glory. We say the Shema every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What that really means is God is everything, and apart from him, there's nothing. And this is a high level of faith. This is the level of faith that really allows us to experience true peace in our lives, true joy, because we realize that anything that appears painful and feels painful in, in this realm of existence is an illusion, it's temporary, but it is purposeful. And the ending is a very happy one. So we can go through it and we can look forward to the joy that's just around the corner. But the highest level of faith is what Dessler calls the happy few. He says, but there is still a still higher level reserved for the happy few. At this point, one sees that far from the concept of natural causes making a positive contribution to the world, natural causes are, in fact, a destructive force. The purpose of creation is to sanctify God's name. As Isaiah says, quote, All that is called by my name and I created for my glory, unquote. Natural causes are destructive because they obscure that glory. In other words, the person at this level of faith is kind of surprised that there's a physical world at all because it's so unnecessary. And it actually is a mask that hides God's presence. Isaiah also said that you are a God who hides himself. And what God hides behind is this physical world. But the day comes when the mask is removed. It's not necessary anymore. And then that 1% world is absorbed into the 100% world. So if we are truly believers, we need to recognize these things. And we need to strive for the truth of realizing that truth is reality. Reality is truth. And if your concept of reality is small, your grasp of the truth is small as well. Colossians. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, I love this. I should have put it on the screen. But Paul writes and says, If then you have been raised up with Messiah, keep seeking the things above in the 99% world, where Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. Now listen to this. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Messiah in God. Where is your existence? Where is your life? It is hidden with Messiah in God. That is where your existence is. But your experience is walking in this 1% world. Your inner world, where you live. (coughs) Excuse me. Your thoughts and emotions, your perceptions, your judgments, uh, That is your 99% world. That is where you truly live. But you express it in this 1% realm. And by the way you express that, it's not too difficult for those around you to tell where your life really is, where you understand your life to be. So try to live your life in such a way that what you say, what you do, reflects that you know that your life is hidden with Messiah in God. You belong completely to him. 
your life as one with his and that he is living his life through you and you are bearing his image in this 1% world. Now the reason I'm harping on this so much is because as we get into chapter 6, you're going to find that Paul is very much contrasting these two worlds. Now, he doesn't use the terms 1% world and 99% world. Uh, He'll talk about the physical and the spiritual, and he'll talk about this world and the world to come. But that this is a reality in his mind is very obvious by what he writes. So let's pick it up, chapter 6, and uh, verse 1 really belongs to chapter 5. So we're going to start in verse 2, and this is what it says. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I've helped you. He's quoting Isaiah 49. And uh, what I'd like you to do, that's 49 verse 8, is uh, later on, read the whole passage, at least that section, Isaiah 49 verses 8 to 13. And then take a look at Isaiah 40 verses 3 and 4. A lot of the language is very similar, but two very opposite and different things are happening. And uh, there's a blessing in store for you if you'll do this little exercise. So read the quote, the passage Paul is quoting from, Isaiah 49, verses 8 to 13, or the whole chapter, if you wish. And then compare it to Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 4. And though the language is similar, the events are very different. And uh, so anyways, that's a little study you can do on your own. And then Paul comments on this short passage. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Remember, Paul has just concluded talking about how God has reconciled the world to himself through Yeshua. And there are no barriers between mankind and God, except the ones mankind puts there. But on God's side of the ledger, there's not a single barrier between him and mankind. He's saying, just come to me. I'm not holding anything against you. He's like the father of the prodigal son. Everything that stood between the prodigal son and his father was a lie that existed in the mind of the son. Because on the father's side of things, there was nothing dividing them. He was just waiting for him to come back. And when he did... There's a huge celebration. Paul is saying, now's the time. What's holding you back? Give yourself fully to God. Verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Here's a good question for you to ask yourself. As you try to serve God, are you inadvertently putting obstacles in people's way to come to him? You may need to talk to someone else you trust to help you work through this to see if there are any obstacles you're putting in the way. I've noticed many times in my life, as I would seek to serve God and bring his truth to people, I found there were things that I was doing and saying and the way I was living that was actually being an obstacle to them coming to God. So it's a a good self-examination we need to do on this point. Verse 4, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Now, you notice all the things he lists. They're part of the 1% world. These are things that are happening to Paul and, 
and to his brothers in ministry. So let's just put some check marks down. So what does he say here? By servants of God, we commit ourselves in every way. By great endurance, that's something they have to do physically. And I don't like that color. Let's go to this. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots. Sounds like Portland, Oregon, doesn't it? Uh, labors, <laughs> sleepless nights, hunger. Then in verse 6 he says, by purity. Now there he's going over the 99% world. Knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God. So all these negative things are happening to him are happening in the physical realm. But all the things he lists in verse 6 are things that are the fruit of God's Spirit within him, fruit of walking in oneness with God, of having faith in God, of, of obeying him. And these are things that don't come out of Paul himself. They come out of the life that is hidden with the Messiah and God. And then look at the next phrase. With the weapons of righteousness. For what? For the right hand and for the left. Now, if you've been listening to my teachings at all over the, over the, <laughs> over the years, you know that wherever the scriptures refers to the right and the left, the right is always the spiritual, the left is always the physical. There are no exceptions to this rule. And Paul says God has given us weapons for the right hand. He mentions that first, for the right hand. We have spiritual weapons and for the left. Because when we operate with God's spiritual weapons, then in this world it makes an impact. And then look what he says, verse 8. Through honor and dishonor. Through slander, that's the 1% world, and praise. There's the 99. We are treated as imposters. And yet, what are we? We're true. We're treated as unknown, and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. See what Paul's doing? He's comparing the two worlds. How can these two opposite groups of statements both be true? Because they're happening in two different worlds. How can anyone go through being treated as an imposter, treated as unknown, as dying, as punished, as sorrowful, as poor, as having nothing, and survive? How can all these things on the left side of the page be happening to him? And yet, the very opposite things are his experience as well. It's because Paul lived his life in the spiritual realm, and he walked it out here in the physical. As you continue to go through chapter 6 and 7, you can come back to this chart, uh, chart and keep acting check marks to both sides because Paul's going to keep going back and forth between these two. But there's something I want you to notice and keep in mind. Everything in the 1% world are the things that happen. 
that everything in the 99% world are the things that are. Things happen to you. They happen to me in this world. What are you? Are you still content? Are you still happy? Are you forgiving? Are you still loving? Are you still at peace? Do you still keep your dignity? Do you recognize who you are? When you think of all the things Yeshua went through, how unfairly he was treated, how he was mocked, how he was slandered, how he was, um, he was sold by a friend, he was denied by others, he was abandoned by his apostles except for John, he was accused, he was beaten, he went through a completely bogus trial, and then crucified as a criminal. And yet through the whole thing, he didn't complain, he didn't whine, but instead he opens his mouth and says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. How do you do that? Because Yeshua knew where his life was. He knew that these things were happening to him. But what he was, was the Son of God. And he knew his identity. He knew who he was. And he knew the ending was good. So if we live our lives in the 99% world, we can walk in the pain and the joys of this 1% world. But we can never afford to get these two confused or to forget who we truly are. Well, let's pick it up in verses 11 to 13. Paul says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. And he's almost like saying, just as God has reconciled the world to himself, he has no barriers there between him and mankind. Paul's saying, our hearts are wide open to you too. There's no barriers there. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. There's a question for you to ask yourself. In what way are your affections restricting you? Do you have too much affection for things that are temporal? Do you have too little affection for the things that are eternal? Because where you put your affections are going to restrict you or they're going to free you. This is why the Master says we should not lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where rust and moth corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We should have affections for things that are eternal. Because where our treasures are, that's where our heart will be also. Where is your heart? and things are going to pass away, then you're in for a world of disappointment. But if your heart is in things that are eternal, then you'll never be disappointed. But you are restricted in your affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Widen your heart. And then we go on to verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, we hear that verse a lot, and we almost always exclusively apply it to dating and marriage. And it includes that, for sure. But uh, Paul is applying to a much wider, much wider application. For what partnership has righteousness with torlessness? Now, if you have your chart in front of you, you can put more checks in both columns. What partnership has righteousness with Torahlessness? 
What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Messiah with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, what's that Belial or Belial, as some pronounce it? This is a word that's found only here in the apostolic scriptures, but it's found more than 20 times in the Tanakh. And this is what it looks like in Hebrew. This has been a very common term to Paul and to any Hebrew reader. And uh, usually we read about the sons of Belial or Belial. And uh, in a lot of modern translations are called sons of disobedience. But uh, though that's an okay translation, that's not literal. Here's what the word means. Now remember, Hebrew reads from right to left. And if we divide this word in half, we have two words. The word on the left, ol, means yoke, like you put on oxen. Bali, on the right, means without. So, Belial means without a yoke. And that's terrible handwriting. I'll clean that up later. But without a yoke. So, Belial, who may have been some pagan god at one time, his name means, its name means, without a yoke. We are to be wearing the yoke of Torah. And Yeshua invites us to take his yoke upon ourselves. And that keeps us aligned so that we go the same direction and accomplish the same goals together. And remember, the part of the yoke that you put your body in, it's part of your body you put in the yoke is your head. And the yoke is the Torah. The yoke is the word of Messiah. You must put your head into it. And when you do, you'll find yourself aligned with the thoughts of God, with the thoughts of Messiah. But sometimes we want to do our own thing. We want to take our heads out of the yoke, and now we are like sons of Belial. We are without a yoke, and we go our own direction. We need to be very careful that we, as believers, don't do what we want, unless we're wanting what God wants. But when we desire something that is contrary with God's revealed will, then uh, we are sheep who are doing what we want to do. And you know what you call sheep who do what they want to do and go where they want to go? We call them lost. We call them strays. And we cannot afford to do what we want. We must align our wills with God's will. We must want what he wants. And if we are not, then we are sons of Belial. Belial, without a yoke. Now, in the second part of verse 16, Paul is quoting Scripture. And it says this, As God said, quote, I will make my dwelling among them, and in Hebrew it can also be within them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, where is that passage in Scripture? It's not in the Bible. 
because it's not one passage. It's made up of at least three passages and more likely five or six passages that Paul has strung together. This is a very common thing. Oh, by the way, I, uh, concerning the sons of Belial, Deuteronomy 13, 13, some worthless men, in Hebrew it's sons of Belial, have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known. Obviously, they've thrown off the yoke. But back to our passage. It's a common thing for, for Jewish teachers like Paul, and he does this a number of times in Scripture, to do what is called stringing pearls. This is a very ancient term because each word of, of the Scriptures, each verse of the Scriptures is like a pearl. And when you take various passages that have a common theme, a common message, and you put them side by side, it's like taking pearls and putting them on a string. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's stringing pearls. So when he says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is from Leviticus 26.12, with a sprinkling of Exodus 29.45. And then in verse 17, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean things, and I will welcome you. This is basically based on Isaiah 52.11. And then he says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This is from 2 Samuel 7, 14. Except there it says, I will be a father to him, referring to Solomon. And um, so um, Paul is taking some liberties, taking the tone of the passages, putting them together because he was a master of the Tanakh, And he could take these points that belong together and string them together to make this beautiful, beautiful message. One of your discussion questions later on is going to be based on these three verses. And so we'll be coming back to these at the end of the teaching. And then chapter 7, verse 1, really belongs with chapter 6. So I I say it's chapter 6, verse 19. So it says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. There's the 1% world and the 99% world. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. To me, this is the key verse for this chapter. For you, there might be another verse that you find to be the key. But for me... This is really the key to chapter 6 and probably 6 and 7 altogether. Now, one of the things I do in the margin of my Bible is I, it, when I come to a verse, it seems to summarize an entire passage. And I want to identify as the key verse, I just draw a key in the margin. And my key is an oval. And I'm, I'm going to start that over again. This is embarrassing. It's an oval with a line coming out the side, and then I draw an old-fashioned key. And that immediately, when I glance at the page, that identifies that verse that, to me, is the key verse that unlocks the passage. If you think about everything we've read so far in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, this is really what it's saying, I think. Therefore, having these promises, we have these amazing, rich wonderful 
promises. Everything that we find in chapters 5 and 6 are promises God is making to us. And Paul is proclaiming these promises. They're amazing, life-changing promises. And if we hold on to these, we should cleanse ourselves from all the defilement of flesh and spirit and spirit and perfect holiness in the fear of God. In other words, walk in this world as people who realize and have laid hold of the promises of the 99% world. Realize that our life is hidden with Messiah in God. And that God has incredible plans for us. And he's, he's cleansing us and preparing us as a bride for his son to live in oneness and unity for eternity, in joy and in purpose and in light. And uh, so Paul says, cleanse yourselves of anything that would defile. So this is a, a verse that's well worth memorizing and meditating on. And go, even going back and reading chapters 5 and 6 again, in light of this one verse and of what the goal is that Paul has for everything he's written up to this point. But we have to go on. Verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Now when you see a list of something like this, three specific things in this case, you need to mark them, identify them, number them in your Bible. And I call these three ministry no-nos. The first one is wrongdoing, and in Greek, it's the word that means the opposite of justice. So you're doing an injustice. So what are the just things? The just things are keeping the commandments. When we walk in the mishpatim of the Torah, in the commandments of the Torah, we are doing good. We're aligning our lives with God's life. But someone who is in ministry and he's disobeying the commandments... He's wronging people. He's doing injustice. He's not applying the commandments of his life or to theirs. But the second one, where Paul says we've corrupted no one, this means to lead away from truth. The first one means the person is violating God's commandments, but in the second one, he's getting other people to violate God's commandments. And then the third one, we have taken advantage of no one. This basically means to be greedy of gain, to be covetousness, to to take from those you are to be feeding. And when you see how Paul did his ministry, he was very careful not to take from the people he served. He would always work to try to support himself, to do things that would not take advantage of those he was laying his life down for. So beware of people who are in ministry who don't keep the commandments, who then lead others to not keep the commandments, and then they take advantage. They're greedy for what they can get from the flock. I was watching a show the other night, and in the show, the, uh, the main character, who is a, a detective, he's uh, investigating a, an unrighteous pastor, actually a cult leader. And at one point, uh, this, this cult leader says, well, I need to get back to my, my sheep. And the, the detective says, yeah, you better, because your flock won't fleece themselves. 
And um, there are a lot of pastors of sheep who are fleecing the sheep. And we need to be very careful of that. And like I've always said, and I still hold to this, if you're watching somebody on TV and they're saying, call the number at the bottom of your screen so you can send us some money, you need to change stations. Because a true man of God is not going to be asking people for money. He's not going to be peddling the word of God. And Beth the Coon has been very generous to uh, provide resources for me, for my family, as I serve them. I've never asked for it, but they've been very generous. I've not taken, but I've received. And I believe that's the way it's to be done. And um, otherwise, I'd be a hireling if I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll serve this community if you pay me such and such. And I'm going to be careful and not say that that is an ironclad rule for all pastors. But just be on the watch for pastors who are doing things for the sake of money. And when the money dries up, the pastor dries up. You need to be careful of that. Uh, because there are a lot of people out there who are peddling the word of God. And they are in it to get rich and richer. So just beware. Paul says, we have corrupt, we have wronged no one, corrupted no one, taken advantage of no one. This is how a godly pastor operates. Verse 3, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. Think about what we learned in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul wasn't all that proud of the Corinthian community when he wrote 1 Corinthians because they had a lot of issues. There's a lot of immaturity. There was sin in their midst. There was tolerance of gross misconduct and sin. They were emotionally driven. They were babies in Messiah. They were acting like babies, and they were acting soulish. And he says, I couldn't write to you like to spiritual people, but as to babies in Messiah. And though you should be at the point where you can chew meat, you still need milk. But how his tone has changed, because between his sending that first letter to the uh, community in Corinth and sending this letter, Corinth had gone through a change. They had listened to what Paul said. They had made the necessary corrections. They had adjusted their behavior. And he says, I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort, and all our affliction I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. Between the first letter and the second, Titus had spent time in the community and he had reported back to Paul. And Paul was just overjoyed. He was thrilled by the news he heard coming out of Corinth. Verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, that's 1 Corinthians, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. In other words, I didn't, 
send the letter just to cause pain. I sent the letter to cause pain that would cause you to repent so that the pain would stop. For you felt a godly grief, a godly sorrow, a godly pain, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly pain, godly grief, or godly sorrow, however your translation puts it, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. You know, the kind of grief that is godly grief, the grief, the pain, the heartache that God imposes on us, is like the pressure that you put on a, on a, a switch to activate a machine, to turn it on, or a key on your keyboard. You press the key, and then the application runs. Worldly grief is like taking a hammer and smashing it down on the key. Now nothing works. Now you've destroyed the key. Godly grief is very measured, very precise. And when God brings pain into our lives, it's always for a godly purpose to bring change, to bring a turn, to bring an adjustment in our lives. And though the pain is still painful, it is good. It's not bad. But when the world inflicts pain, it is utterly destructive. It has no redeeming value to it. It's just there to cause pain and nothing more. Now, he says that godly sorrow produces repentance. Now, there, there are two things in Scripture that produce repentance. One here is godly grief, godly sorrow, but there's something else as well, and that is the kindness of God. Because if you read in Romans 2.4, this is what it says. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? This is interesting to keep both of these in our minds. There are two things God can use, and it's his option as to which one he uses. He can use godly pain, or he can use godly kindness. I've heard testimonies of people, and so have you, where they were rebelling against God, they didn't know God, didn't want to know him, and then God brought some tragedy into their life that broke them, and they repented and gave their lives to the Lord. Then I read about other people who were running from God, wanted nothing to do with him, and suddenly... Something wonderful happens in their lives and their hearts melt because they realize this came from God and they repent and give their lives to him. Godly grief, godly kindness. I've experienced both in my life. And why God will use one at one time and the other at another time, I don't know. But he's God, I'm not. And, but, but our responsibility is to repent and make changes under either condition. So let God do what he'll do, and it's always going to be perfect, but sometimes God will bring great great pleasure, great relief, great joy into a person's life. I know when I pray for my enemies, I want to see that godly sorrow come in, but then I think, Lord, bless them, bless them. Father, melt their hearts with your goodness. And I become a little less harsh in my dotage, and I pray, God, just bring them repentance. So whatever it takes, bring them repentance, and I'll give you thanks for it. So, 
I want to be aware there are two ways God can bring repentance into a person's life. Verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, which sounds odd, but um, he's just saying, look at what this godly sorrow did to, to make you want to correct your previous behavior. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Verse 12, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, not for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. If you're wondering what Paul's talking about, you go back to 1 Corinthians 5. You'll find it described there. But in order that your earnestness on our behalf might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. And again, what a change of attitude in Paul's part towards the Corinthians. I have complete confidence in you. Here's a question for you. Does God have complete confidence in you? We always talk about having faith in God, but you know, I I believe God has faith in us. He's cheering us on. And he wants to say that he has complete confidence in you and in me. So there's a question to ask yourself. Can God be confident that you're going to follow him? You're going to make the wise decision, the selfless decision? That you're going to forgive when you're angry? That you're going to put aside the wrongs that have been done to you? That even when you don't feel like serving him, you serve him anyway. Are you going to give in to the things you want to say, but you know you shouldn't? Are you going to have the courage to say the things you must say, but you're afraid to? Can God be confident in you that you're going to follow him? There's only one way he can be confident in you. And that is if you realize that you live in the 99% world and you're invested in the unseen world, not this temporal world, but the unseen world, the eternal world. And we must continue to pursue faith, continue to pursue knowing the truth and knowing him. Because I really believe the shaking that is taking place in our world is going to continue And I believe that we are in the birth pangs of Messiah. And those birth pangs are going to get more severe. They're going to get closer together. But if we're living in the 99% world, what happens here in this 1% world will not shake us because we'll be on the rock. So we need to pursue and lay hold of God. We need to lay hold of faith. Live in the truth. Lay hold of these promises and to realize that our life is hidden with Messiah in God, and then we'll be unshakable 
and God will be confident in us. And the world around us, when they're being shaken to pieces, will look at us. They'll ask us about the hope we have because they'll know that our hope is real and unshakable. That's what I want to be. I'm not confident in myself, but I really am hoping that I will be able to stand and you'll be able to stand with me and me with you in the days ahead. So, here are your discussion questions. Number one, how does living in the 99% world help you to walk in the 1% world? Take some time to discuss this and share your thoughts with each other. Discuss the previous question, the first question I just asked, in light of Acts 17.28. Now, you have to look that up. We didn't talk about that verse, but look it up and discuss the previous question, how living in the 99% world helps you walk in the 1% world, and talk about it in light of Acts 17.28. Number three, Paul told the Corinthians, you are restricted by your affections. What does this mean, and how does it apply to you? Number four, is it possible to be without a yoke in one area of your life and not in another? I think you know right away what the answer to that is, but take some time to discuss it. And if there's an area in your life where you realize you are not yoked to God, then fix it. And this fifth question to me is maybe the most important. Take time to silently meditate on the message of the string of pearls Paul created. He created a string of pearls by taking these passages and stringing them together. So take time and meditate on chapter 6, verse 16, the second half of verse 16 through 18. Just silently in your group, take two minutes and just silently read that over and over and over and chew on it and digest it. And then discuss with your group your insights and the appropriate response to chapter 7, verse 1, or like to say chapter 6, verse 19. So uh, God bless you as you uh, talk about these things, and I hope you find these two chapters as great a blessing to you as they have been to me. So let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you so much for these precious words of the Holy Apostle Paul. Thank you for his life. Thank you, Lord, for raising up this man who has made such an impact in our own lives 2,000 years later. Lord, I pray that we might learn the things that he teaches us. And may these words burn in our minds and our hearts, that we will desire to live a full life, not just 1% of what life can be, but 100%. Make us the people you want us to be. Make us spiritual men and women who are active, and not reactive, who constantly are founded and stable because we know the promises you have made to us, because we trust you, we love you, we believe in you, and we realize the oneness of your name. And we know that you are the God of all the earth, and beside you there's nothing else. We thank you, Father, for being such a great and loving God to us. We praise you in Yeshua's name. Amen.